But let's stay right there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 as we wrap up this book, or become close to wrapping up this book today, as we've been in for several weeks now. Uh, many have saw, seen this book, uh, they, they misunderstood its point. Uh, people have gone different directions on it. Some, a lot of people think it's just a very pessimistic book. It's a, somebody said it's a, it's a view of life from the back of a hearse. Uh, others have said it's like looking at life with dark colored glasses and uh, that kind of view. But, but that's not how it should be understood. That's not how God intends for it to be understood. Matter of fact, it's a joyful book when understood from God's perspective. And I didn't just make that up. Uh, that was actually the view of the ancient uh, Hebrews. Uh, they would read the, the book of Ecclesiastes on their most uh, joyful feast day uh, the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the book they actually opened up and read out loud uh, to the congregation uh, on that particular feast because they saw it as a book of great joy when understood from God's perspective. As we've been looking at the book together and, and looking at all the details, we, we ended up last week showing that there's actually three threads of truth running throughout the book. And these three threads must be understood and kept in balance uh, for us to live the life God wants us to live. A first thread is this, that, that God has designed life to be enjoyed. And that's a hard thing for many people to grasp, but that's exactly what the book teaches. Seven different times Solomon returns to that theme and says God is, is giving us gifts in this life, often very simple gifts, very common gifts, gifts that anybody can enjoy. He's given those gifts to us to enjoy in this life. And so that's one of the threads that we find flowing throughout the book. A second thread, though, is that life is meaningless. And uh, we'll see that even today. And that's, uh, it starts that way. It says it often. Life is meaningless. Uh, life, from a certain perspective, is, is gloomy. Uh, life is, is difficult. Life is hard. When it's out of balance, when all we do is look at the gloomy side of life, when we look at it from a wrong perspective, when we look at life out of touch with God, out of connection with God, then life is meant to be meaningless. And that's something I think most people miss. Life is designed by God to be empty, worthless, without purpose, and meaningless if you don't have a vital connection with the God of the universe who has created it all. That is the design that God has been talking about throughout the book. And then the third thread is that life is, me is meant to be lived for God. And the only way to get that out of balance is to forget the first two threads. And if we forget the first two threads, then we get uh, a distorted view of God himself, which leads to a distorted view of life and our, li our place in it. Now these three threads sort of then act like uh, three uh, legs of a stool. If I could mix that metaphor or change the metaphor for a moment. A stool, a three-legged stool balances quite well. But if you take one of those legs off or two legs off or you shorten one, make some different heights, it's going to be difficult to balance that stool. And so that's the threads that he's running through, these legs of truth running throughout the book. We need all three. We need them in balance. We need to, be, to have them exactly as God designed them to be. So we're looking at that today as we come to chapter 12. We're going to take a careful look at these three legs or three threads, whichever metaphor you're happy with, and these threads of truth. And let's take a good look at them as we wrap this book up. Number one, life is meant to be enjoyed. In chapter 12, verse 1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Now we looked at this theme last week. Uh, with the idea that uh, God has a special plan for young people. 
that in our youth, God would like for us and wants us to enjoy life to the full. He says in verse 9, Rejoice, young man, during, the, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and desires of your eyes. I'm going to stop there for a moment. So he's talking to young people here. He wants us to enjoy this life that we have. So he's turning at this point to, our, to young people and telling them to enjoy life while life is there. At the end of verse 10, he says, because childhood and the prime of life is fleeting. It doesn't last very long. So he calls on us to enjoy life as, when we're young as we can. And then he's going to move on from that to talk about growing older and the difficulty of enjoying life in our old age. But I want to notice before we move on to that, look at that back at this verse 9. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And so it almost, if you read that wrongly, it's almost like this. You know, here, go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Follow your heart wherever it may lead you. Along with Elvis, that didn't work out so well for Elvis. But um, follow your heart, follow your impulses, do what you want to do, but know God is going to get you in the end. That is not what he is saying. He is saying that everything that we do is examined by God. Everything we do, God knows about. Everything we do has significance as we move further because God sees, God judges, God knows, God examines our lives. And, he, and basically, if we look at it from his perspective, these are not threats. These are safeguards that God has placed in our life to keep us from going off the rails. Now, I don't know about you, but throughout my life, I've enjoyed roller coasters. And uh, even today, I, when I go to Six Flags or someplace, I will ride the roller coasters. And every time now that I get on a roller coaster, especially in recent years, I say, are you insane? What in the world is wrong with you to get on these things? But as I get on them, as I'm going up to that first turn, you know, that first drop, and I'm beginning to wonder about whether or not this is a wise thing to do, I also realize that there's built into this roller coaster system guardrails and safety features that keep me from dying. You know, they, they, they tell us it's more dangerous to get the Six Flags than it is to ride the roller coasters. So there's not much danger there, but my emotions and my mind are not always together. So as my emotions are going crazy, my mind is telling me, settle down, safety features are here, guardrails are in place, you're not going to die. But what would happen if you, you were in the very early stages of developing roller coasters and you didn't have the safety features yet? I, I always wonder who, who invented certain things, what happened to the guinea pigs? You know, could you imagine just going straight off the rails and flying through the air, you know? Uh, that's exactly what we would do if we didn't have the safety features. And, and this is how we would live life if we didn't have the safety features, the guardrails that God has put in place. He is telling us live life to the full, but remember there are, there are limits to how you live life. That, the, that those that go into sin... Those who allow their sin to, to, to uh, destroy them will be actually destroyed. Sin is a destructive, ugly thing. Its whole design is to destroy. And so God places in our lives these safety features of his judgment to keep us from just simply doing whatever we would want to do and destroy ourselves. So seen from that angle, we see the value of that. So he tells us to enjoy life, enjoy the, enjoy the pleasures, enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, uh, and he talks about things like good food and sleep and work and marriage, all these kinds of things. 
these are gifts from God given to us to enjoy if we're living for Him. But all of us know there are times in life when we can enjoy things very well, right? There are times when we have tragedies and disappointments and sorrows and embarrassments and, and poor health and broken hearts. What do we do then? Well, he has covered that. Go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 14 briefly. In the days of prosperity, be happy. But in the days of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other. So when things are going well, enjoy. Be happy. God, God gives you his blessing to do that. But when things are tough, consider, ponder, think. God has made both of them. God has given us both of these. And so chapter 7, actually the whole chapter pretty much deals with how to deal with bad times in such a way that uh, we, we grow and mature as a result of those uh, bad times that God has brought and allowed to come into our life. Now let's go back to our text in chapter 12. Solomon begins uh, to, to bring up now a di another difficult time of life. And that time is old age. And he's going to start talking about people who are getting old and I don't think as we go through this, uh, I don't think he's making fun of old people. I think most likely he's an old person himself. And some of the descriptions of old age he's going to give us here, that uh, if you're old, uh, you don't find so funny. Uh, if you're young, you think it's hilarious. But, it, but Solomon didn't think that way, because I think Solomon probably was describing his, himself in his older years and those around him. But uh, he's going to look at this as we get older, and as we get older and lose certain abilities, it's harder, he is saying, to enjoy life. It's harder to get pleasure from the simple things that used to give us pleasure in life. That's why he says, as a young person, enjoy the things I give you. Because when you get older, it's going to be harder, and in some cases, almost impossible to enjoy even the very simplest things that God brings our way. And so he says again in verse 1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. He's going to give us a poetic picture of the debilities of old age in verses 2 to 7. And he wants to encourage us to remember and live for the Lord then while we are young, while we have that ability to do so. So, what are some of the signs of old age? Well, we'll look at Solomon's in a moment, but let me give you some other people's ideas. Somebody said uh, old age is when your knees buckle but your belt doesn't. <laughs> when you sit in a rocker and you can't get it rocking. When the little old lady you walk across the street is your wife. When everything hurts, this is a good one, when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. And this is my favorite, because I used to say this all the time to old people. I found it more applicable to my life lately. When you bend over to tie your shoes and ask if there's anything you ought to do while you're down there. Yeah. Someone said, I, and some of you might relate to this little poem, I get up each morning, I dust off my wits, I pick up the paper and read the obits. If my name is missing, I know I'm not dead, so I eat a good breakfast and go back to bed. Well, those are funny, right? Unless you're actually living those. So Paul, Solomon quickly moves into the characteristics of old age. And uh, he is going to talk about what that's like. I, I remember many times over the years, uh, some of our older people would say to me, uh, they, back years ago, they said, Gary, don't ever get old. 
old age is bad. It's awful to get old. And I, I didn't have much sympathy when I was younger. I don't know if I have any now. But I, didn't, I would say to them, well, what's the alternative? To die young, right? So they didn't like that idea. So, so they said, okay, we'll live with that for now. Let's see what Solomon has to say about old age here. And uh, as we look at that, we're going to see it's very poetic. It's very uh, symbolic. But I want to try to guide you through what I think he's saying about old age. Before these days come, when you have no delight in them, then he starts tucking them off. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. I think he's talking here about mental infirmities. When we start forgetting things. Uh, when, our, when our memory is starting to go. When our mind is not clear on many different issues and we're cloudy. And there's some good days, but then the rain returns. And so this is perhaps even a place of dementia for eventually when it goes far enough. Then he goes on to the physical concerns, verse 3, a whole bunch of them. He says, and the day of the watchman of the house tremble. So he's talking about shaking hands, of the trembling of our bodies, the weakness of our arms and legs. He talks second, thirdly about the stooping or bending over, he says, and the mighty men stoop. So here in old age, people begin to stoop with gravity taking us down, or we have arthritis, and those things start to come in. And the next one is actually kind of funny, at least in the way he says it. It's not funny if you have it, but it's funny if the way he says it. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. He's talking about teeth. Okay? Now, before modern dentistry, people didn't keep their teeth very long. You know, I find it funny when we watch an old movie of the of a cowboy show, the Vikings or whatever else, and they all got all these beautiful white choppers. They didn't have choppers by the time they were 30. Most of them, they were decayed, falling out. Even the wealthy were toothless by the time they got 30 or 40 years old in most cases. In the old days, people just didn't keep their teeth. And so he says, the grinding ones stand idle. You got one or two teeth left, you know, just hanging in there. And uh, there, there's just a few of them. Then the windows, he says... He speaks of that. Now he's speaking about our, our, our sight. He says, uh, and, those, uh, because there are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. The eyesight's going. Uh, you know, again, once uh, people got cataracts back in the day, they didn't have surgery for cataracts. So sometimes people would be blind for the last 20 years of their life. Couldn't see a thing. Uh, the, the windows had grown dim. And even now, you know, um, many of us are finding our arms are a lot shorter than they used to be. We can't see what we used to be able to see and so forth and having those problems. And so he talks about our sight. And also what about the hearing? He says, and, and one will rise. Well, hang, let me go back to verse 4. The doors of the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. So he's talking about not being able to hear even loud sounds because the hearing is going. And one will rise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. So now... You get up with the birds, but you can't hear them sing. That's a, that's a bummer, isn't it? You know, and a lot of older people, you know, you, you can sleep in, old people, right? You can sleep in to 10 o'clock, but you, but you can't get beyond 5.30. You're up. You're up with the birds, but you can't hear them. That's the kind of thing he's talking about here. And then he's, it, we're, they're afraid of heights. He says, furthermore, men are afraid of high places and the terrors of the road. Uh, young men who used to jump off roofs of houses now have a concern with stepping off one step. Uh, they're afraid of high places. And what about all those whippersnappers driving on the roads, 45 miles per hour in a 45? What are they thinking? Are they nuts? We're afraid of those people on the road here. 
these older folks are, he says. And the almond tree blossoms. The almond blossom is white. And so he's talking about the, the white hair and grain of old age. The grasshopper drags himself along. Grasshoppers are great at, at hopping. They're not very good at walking. And so he's talking about the arthritis and the stiffness of old age. The caperberry is ineffective, talking about the desires of, of life are no longer what they used to be in the appetites. And then he moves on to the issue of death. He says, for man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken, and the golden bowl is crushed, and the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the will at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So that, now we're moving into the days of death. Is, is Solomon trying to simply depress us? I, I don't think so. I don't think he's trying to do that at all. He's not, he, but he is painting a pretty tough picture of old age. He is saying, look, if, this is your, if you're living your life without God and you move into the old age section of your life, then you have nothing to look forward to but simply dying. And then what? What do you have after that? What is eternity like? What do you do beyond that? Many of you have read the ep epitaph of Ben Franklin. He wrote his own epitaph to put on his tombstone. A couple of things you probably don't know. Number one, he wrote this about 30 years before he died. Uh, and he, right after he became a printer, he decided to write his own epitaph and, and it was later put on his tombstone. And uh, I'll get to the second thing in a moment, but let me read what he wrote. He said, the body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped off of its lettering and gilding, lies here. Food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Now that's pretty good stuff in a way. Where he doesn't see himself simply staying in the grave. He's going to get a new edition and so forth. But here's a problem. Ben Franklin did not know Christ. And here's the second thing you don't know, probably, and that is that George Whitfield, the greatest preacher and evangelist of the 18th century, was a good friend of Ben Franklin. They wrote to each other a lot. They were friends. They hung out together. And, and Whitfield constantly tried to bring Franklin to Christ, constantly evangelizing. And Ben Franklin, at the very end, even one of his last letters he wrote concerning Whitfield, said, Whitfield failed. I never came to the Lord. So he wasn't a Christian. And so he doesn't have the hope he thinks he has. When Whitfield read the epitaph that Franklin wrote, here's, here was his response to Franklin. He wrote this to him. I have seen your epitaph. Believe, believe on Jesus and get a feeling, possession of God in your heart. And you cannot possibly be, be disappointed if you expected second edition, finally corrected, and infinitely amended. What a great response. Look, he said to his friend, uh, unless you know Christ, that new edition is not going to be what you think it is. Come to Christ. And when you are resurrected from the dead, you will have that new body, that new life, that new edition. But until you know Christ, you have no such hope. And that's where Solomon is taking us in our passage of Scripture here. Without the Lord, we have no hope. And as a result of that, we live our lives with uh, uncertainty of life now and uncertainty 
in the future. So, let us enjoy life. Let us enjoy all the great gifts God has given us. But only if we are vitally connected with the Lord, if we know Christ is our Savior, if we've recognized the sinfulness of ourselves and the inability to do anything before a righteous God to be right. And, and we have come to Him in, in humbleness and in repentance and by faith alone received the gift that Christ procured for us on the cross. Then we then can go throughout all of our life knowing that He's in control and whatever He brings our way is for our good. And then we go to, into eternity knowing that we're with Jesus Christ forevermore. Unless you know that, then you, if you're just simply enjoying life and trying to get by with the best stuff you can get by with, you're wasting your life, and in the end, you will see that. And that leads us to verse 8 and the second great thread, and that is life is meaningless. It says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. This second thread uh, sums up much of what he said throughout the book. As a matter of fact, his first statement in the whole, in the whole book, chapter 1, verse 2, is almost identical to this one. So he begins here, he ends here. Vanity, vanity, that is all is meaningless, all is emptiness, all is worthless, all is temporary, everything for, falls short of its goal in life. What an ugly way to see life, but that's the way life is if you are not connected to Jesus Christ. The word itself is vanity also implies deceitfulness. Everything in life deceives us. It tells us things that should be. It gives us promises but never delivers on those promises. It's kind of like, uh, like th these things are the ultimate timeshare salesman. You ever gone to a timeshare presentation? If you ever have, you'll sit down with somebody who's very slick, who will promise you the most wonderful things in life. Matter of fact, you can't imagine how you ever lived without a timeshare. It's the most wonderful thing life has ever brought your way, and you can buy this timeshare today and be happy forevermore. And you are happy for about 15 minutes until you find out what's really going on with the timeshare. And then you find you probably made one of the biggest financial mistakes of your whole life. I had a friend one time who actually was a timeshare salesman. And unfortunately for him, he was a Christian. And so he couldn't stand it any longer because all he said, all I do all day long is deceive people. And so I had to go into some other line of work. Good for him. Deception. That's what, that's what life is. Life is a deception. Uh, life is promising what it cannot deliver over and over and over and over. And if you believe the lies of the world, then life to you ultimately is meaningless. It's worthless. It has no ultimate point. So Solomon had been saying this throughout the book. And uh, he, he says, as long as we keep on believing, and remember how he said this often, as long as we keep on believing that one more party one more purchase, one more adventure, one more honor, one more promotion, one more whatever will give us purpose and fulfillment in life, then we will continue down this road of meaninglessness. No matter what we try, we will never discover what God wants us to discover in Himself. And so in that sense, meaninglessness is part of the life for most people. It's a never-ending search for something that we cannot find. So the major thread here, this major thread of truth that Solomon is teaching us is that life, and again, I get this, I'll one last summary of this, life stripped of God, life untethered to God, life where the Lord is left out of ourselves, our ways, our life, is meant to be meaningless, it's meant to be empty, it's meant to be without purpose, and that is meant to drive us to God, as we'll see in just a moment.
Well, you say, what's left? You know, I, I, I want to read you just quickly. I'm not going to go back and look at these. But throughout the book, here are the things that Solomon has said are meaningless. They don't deliver. Chapter 2, wisdom, human wisdom. Chapter 2, labor and work. Chapter 2, ungodly purpose. Chapter 4, achievements. Chapter 4, business. Chapter 4, success. Chapter 5, money. Chapter 6, possessions. Chapter 7, fun. Chapter 8, awards and honor. None of those deliver what they promise. They all leave us in the end of the day meaningless and without purpose. So you say, what's left? You know, what's, what's le- if, if all those things leave us empty, then what is left? And before I answer that question, let me ask you to verify what I've just said, this thread of truth with your own life and your own experience. Has any amount of money or success or possessions or fun ever brought you lasting fulfillment? No, it has not. Isn't it true that the more you have, the more you want? That, uh, so you're never content and never will be in this life. Have you recognized this great truth yet? If not, if not Solomon's speaking to you in verse 8, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is meaningless. What a waste to have lived your life without purpose, to die without purpose. What a tragedy of tragedies. Now it seems contradictory, doesn't it, what I've said so far? On the one hand, God said, I've designed life to, to give you great joys. And I've designed life to be meaningless. And quite frankly, those two threads alone are contradictory. Unless they drive us to the final thread of truth. And that is that life was meant and is meant to be lived for God. And that's where he takes us starting with verse 9. And as he does so, concluding his book, he breaks his conclusion into two parts. First of all, why we ought to listen to him. All right? Well, we should listen to him for a couple of reasons. One, look at his qualifications. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man and a preacher, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of, of truth correctly. The words of a wise man are like goads and masters of those collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Let's start with his qualifications. Solomon, we know, is a wise man. Matter of fact, the Lord gave him a supernatural wisdom. Most likely then, no mortal who has ever walked the planet is wise as Solomon. Because God gave him this supernatural wisdom. But he didn't just rest on his IQ uh, and his wisdom. He was a student. He, was a, he, he searched out, he said. He, he researched, he pondered, he thought through and weighed everything. He dug deep below the surface of life. And he, and he was not content playing games. He wanted to know what made life tick. It's kind of like the kids. Some of you might have had a kid like this. I did. Who, if you gave them a, a I gave him one time a, a, a motor from a furnace. And he immediately, an old, old motor, he immediately tore it apart. And had pieces all over the place. Because he wanted to know what made the motor tick. That's what Solomon was like. He wasn't content with the surface. He wasn't content just floating through life. He wanted to know what made it tick. And he pondered. Even though he's brilliant, he pondered life in that way. So this wisest of man has given us this book 
so that we can understand life because we're not as wise as him. And so his wisdom is loaned to us so that we don't have to figure all these things out ourselves. The Lord has allowed him to, uh, to give those things to us in this book and other scriptures. Now here's the second reason we ought to listen to him because he's inspired by God and that's the ultimate. When he says in verse 11, the words of a wise man are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. Here, here's his real point here. They're given by one shepherd. In other words, he was inspired by God. What he had to say was not his own words, his own wisdom, his own insights. They were from God. And that's so vital because we could talk all day about philosophy. We could talk all day about what one person said or that person said. Weigh this out, weigh that out. But, what, but we're looking at this in detail because this is nothing less than the very word of God. It's given to us by one shepherd, God himself. And so Solomon was the instrument that God used to provide for us the wisdom, not of himself alone, but of the wisdom of God. And that's why this book is such a powerful book in our lives. And he says concerning these things, and we looked at this a couple times before, but let's look again. Uh, the, the words of a wise man are like goads. And remember those goads were those long pointed sticks that were used. They usually had a metal tip on the end. They were used to poke the oxen to keep them going, prod them along. And so the, these words of wisdom that he gives us here are used to prod us on to wake us up and to press us to God. These wise words are not simply wise words. They're used as goads to push us towards God. And then secondly, they're as, like well-driven nails. Uh, these nails were the kind of nails that were used by the, by the nomads of, of ancient uh, Israel to uh, nail down their tents. It, they, it kept the tent secure. Without the nails, the wind would come along and blow them over or blow them away. But the nails kept them secure. Do you want your life to be nailed down so that not every little philosophy and idea that comes along blows you about? And you need the well-driven nails that the Lord provides here, the stability that only He gives. And so that's what this book has been doing. These are words given by one shepherd through the instrument of Solomon to tell us what life is about and how to live it wisely. But there is a danger, verse 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. There's a danger here, he says, of these other writings and books. And if, if Solomon said that 3,000 years ago, think what he would say today. I mean, there's thousands of books, thousands of Christian books rolling off the presses every week. It's impossible to begin to stay up with them. And he's saying here, there is a danger in all this other talk, all these other writings, all these other things that are trying to teach you a different way of living than what, I, what the one shepherd teaches us. I, I, would, I would encourage you folks, it says it's wearisome to read all these things, and you know I read a lot of books, and sometimes I'm weary of doing that, but I want to really encourage you. You know, if you're going to spend a great deal of time uh, listening to all the Twitter feeds, reading those things, the podcasts, the blogs, all these books, all these magazines, all these television and radio programs, all these things. If you're going to spend a great deal of time listening to this banner going back and forth of the so-called ideas and wisdoms of people, I'm going to guarantee you something. You are going to be weary. You're going to be frustrated. 
You're going to be, at times you're just going to wish it. You could just go somewhere and hide out for five years and get away from it all. Because these things, these, these inner uh, uh, mural discussions of people that think they're wise and are not are wearisome. And I want to say that too about Christian books. Uh, the vast majority of Christian books are of this nature. They're not drawn from Scripture. Watch your books. Often as I'm reading a book and doing a review, my, my main thing to look at is, are these ideas being drawn from Scripture or from something else? They might even be accurate sometimes, but if they're not drawn from Scripture, they're just good ideas, maybe, or bad ones, but they're not biblical ideas. Read your books with that in mind. Many, many uh, uh, Bible teachers have warned that going into a Bible bookstore is probably one of the most dangerous minefields you can walk into because most of the books they're selling are bestsellers. You can buy those, by the way, at Target and, and Menards and wherever you want to go, uh, all, the, all the airports. You can go in there and you can find those. But every, almost every book you'll find in those locations are a minefield of disaster. Okay, so what are you going to do? Well, first of all, what, here's, a, here's just a very simple thing that you could do that most people won't. For every minute you spend listening to some other garbage or whatever is out there, or whatever book you're reading, for every minute you're doing that, read a, read a minute in the Bible. Go to the one shepherd who has the one truth. You're not going to have a lot of time to read all this junk if you're doing that. And I, when I say junk, I shouldn't be too harsh. Some things are worth reading, certainly. They're helpful. But at the same time, they're wearisome if they're not coming from the one shepherd. Now here's the second part to his conclusion, verses 13 and 14. A summary of the duty of humanity. He's going to summarize the duty of humanity. And as he brings us to a conclusion, uh, he wants to talk about our duty before the Lord. He gives us three things. He says in verse 13, he says, The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. There's three things here. Number one, fear God. This is not the kind of fear where a child runs from their bully father. This is the kind of fear that, that has a child run to their loving father because of their respect for that father. Now this is such an important concept in Scripture and such an ignored concept in Scripture. So ignored in Christian circles today that I'm going to actually close Ecclesiastes next week with a discussion based on that verse of the fear of God. In Scripture, the fear of the Lord is found 150 times. Who talks about the fear of the Lord today? Well, if we don't understand it, I'm going to propose, if you don't understand the fear of the Lord, biblically, then you do not understand the Christian life. And if you do not understand the Christian life, your life will be empty, your life will be meaningless, you will wander about because you do not understand the fear of the Lord. That's how important that is. And that's his conclusion, folks. He didn't randomly say, I've got to throw in three points and a poem at the end. He says, look, here it is. When the conclusions have been made, here it is. Fear the Lord. Fear God. Number two, we must obey Him. And He says, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. I think uh, fearing the Lord and obeying Him are hand in glove. Matter of fact, obeying Him is, uh, is evidence 
of fear of him. We'll see that more next week. But folks, we'll, we'll never obey the Lord if we don't trust him. Right? If you don't think you can trust God, if you think he's going to drop the ball in your life, if you think he may mess it up, why would you obey him? Why not just go off on your own way and live your own life? And so this whole book has been about trusting him as well. Can you trust the sovereign, almighty, omniscient God of the universe, or can you not? And if you can, then obeying him is not all that tough. And then finally, we live in the light of his judgment, verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, and everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. He's back to this issue of judgment. One day we will face God. Hebrews 9.27 is extremely clear. We're appointed unto, unto us to die once and then face the judgment. We are go, all are going to stand before Almighty God someday. And God is not simply a God of love. He's also a God of many things, including holiness and justice. True love demands holiness and justice. And so he will bring every act of judgment, everything that's hidden, good or evil. We're not going to hide from him. We're not going to slip by his, his sight. Everything will be examined by God and will be evaluated by God. There will be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and there will be punishment for those who have ignored him. These are the three conclusions that he draws. So the book starts out, let me pull it all together. The book starts out by saying that in effect that everything we do seems insignificant. It's meaningless and empty. And the book ends by saying everything we do has big significance, ultimate significance, because God is in it, and God sees it all, and God evaluates it all. God will someday examine our words, whether public or private, whether good or bad, and that shows that everything has eternal implications. Everything. That means that, uh, that, that we are to live a life then, that pleases him. How should we then live? Here's the conclusion of the book. How should we then live? Number one, we should live our lives for God. If he is the ultimate sovereign ruler of the universe, if nothing ever gets by him, if everything will be examined by him, everything and everyone, then the only wise and good thing to do is to live for him. And we'll never be disappointed with that. I want to make that clear. Everything else in life will disappoint you at some point, including yourself, if you haven't noticed. But God will never disappoint you. Secondly, we must realize that we cannot live for the things of this world, for in and of themselves they're empty. The, the things that God gives us to enjoy are gifts he gives us when we're walking with him. And when we're walking with him, he gives us the gifts that he wants us to enjoy, and he gives us the ability to enjoy those things. And then finally, we are to enjoy the things of this world as his gifts, but we say always are looking to him for the purpose that he has given these things for us, to, to live out our lives for him. God will bring everything, every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil, not because he is an angry deity that doesn't love us, but because he's a gracious and loving father who sent his son to die for us, that we might live forever with him. Remember Jesus' words to his own disciples in the upper room, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And I come for you to take you to be with me forever. The Lord wants us to be with him forever. And he wants us to enjoy him now. It, this book uh, should change our lives, folks. I hope it has. It's changed mine. We come away explaining, exclaiming as Walt Kaiser in his commentary on Ecclesiastes said these words, What a book. What a good God. What a life. What a plan. I hope that's your response. Father, we, we pause before you thanking you for this book, what we have learned. Thank you for the uh, picture of yourself that we've seen here and the picture of, our, of ourselves. And Lord, we pray for the wisdom to apply these teachings, these truths to our lives by the power of your Spirit. Lord, this would be life-changing to every one of us if we did. And I pray that we'd have the wisdom to do so. Father, give us, give us your strength, your power, your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.